Good morning. If you were here last week, today's passage will sound familiar to you. We will again be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I, I couldn't just have one sermon from this text. So, and I'm resisting the urge to have a, a third message. We're just going to keep reading the same passage. But that could get dangerous. It could be self-indulgent. Before I jump in, I want to recommend two books to you. Um, I'm grateful for the authority of Scripture, and there is no other book like it. And because I'm grateful for the authority of Scripture, I'm thankful for books that help me understand what God is actually saying in His Word, you know, because we need help to do that. Um, so we're, we're talking a lot, last Sunday, this Sunday, about things like what other people think of us. Not that anybody in this room has ever wrestled with that issue. Fear of Man, one of my favorite books on that topic that's really helped my own soul is by Ed Welch. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. So I was going to bring my copy, but it's so old, it, it will look like a different book than that book. So just look at that picture, because that's what you can find in the bookshop. But it's a very helpful resource if you wrestle and feel stuck with just, I'm always terrified. What do people think of me? I've been there, and that's a huge help. The second book is Side by Side by Ed Welch. We're going to focus a lot this morning on the kind of relating to people that pleases the Lord. And Ed Welch, in a very simple, help, simple, not sinful, simple, helpful way, lays that out. Here's what it looks like to do life side by side. That's, that's just kind of a just way of describing we do it together, helping each other follow Jesus. So check out those in the bookshop. 
uh, for more help. I'm going to keep recommending books like that throughout our study of Thessalonians so you know where to go as the Lord's working in your heart on different things. So this whole sermon series is called Living with the End in View. I'm not into crazy creative titles. I'm into titles for sermon series that actually say what the sermon series is about. And so this entire book of 1 Thessalonians is all about living with the end in view. Um, it's, it's written to help us live in light of the end of the story. Not just our own individual stories, but, but the end of the story of the entire human race. And if you want to know what the end of the story for the entire human race is, in case you're curious, um, I don't recommend you go and see the latest summer blockbuster because the end of our story is not the cataclysmic vengeance of climate change. It's not World War III. It's not an alien invasion or, or countless other, here's how it's going to end. It's all going to come crashing down that, that the movies would suggest. Nor is the end of our story a mystery. Why not? Well, it's known, it's clear, because our little story is actually part of a great big story. It's God's story. And he's already revealed what happens in the final chapter. He he created us in the beginning, and he's going to hold us accountable in the end. What is that end? Well, it's all about Jesus Christ about Jesus returning to this world that he created to judge the living and the dead. That's the end of the story. It's about Jesus. And living in light of that end, friends, starts with choosing to follow the only one who can deliver us in that end, right? It starts with conversion. So just reviewing here, with, with turning away from idols or the false gods that we think will deliver us, to trusting and waiting for Jesus, who, who what does Paul say in, in 1 Thessalonians? What, what does Jesus do? He delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul and his companions who, who wrote this letter, they're confident that the Holy Spirit has already worked that miracle in the Thessalonians' hearts. They've, they've made that critical turn. They believe the word of the gospel, the good news of all Jesus has done to save us from sin and death. And they turned away from sin to trusting and following Jesus. They're confident that God's done that work in their hearts. And so as the main author, Paul's Paul's overflowing, if you look back at chapter one, with thanksgiving to God for that work. He knows God's done a miracle in their life. And he reminds the Thessalonians that God uses means. How about that? God used Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to draw sinners to himself in Thessalonica. How did he use them? Well, they were faithful to do two things, which haven't changed in a couple thousand years, right? To speak the truth of the gospel with their words. They actually had to talk to people about Jesus. Imagine that. And they had to adorn the truth of the gospel or testify to it with their life, with their deeds. And so in chapter two, it doesn't come as a shock Paul, main author, transitions from recounting the joy of the Thessalonians' conversion. In other words, it is so cool and exciting that you're following Jesus to defending the record and integrity of his ministry. 
And so chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is, is all about how the Thessalonians experienced the ministry of Paul and his companions. How, how did Paul and his companions help the Thessalonians live with the end in view? How did they do that? And, and the setup here is pretty straightforward. Okay, so if you were here last Sunday, hopefully this will trigger some thoughts in your mind. Okay, Paul and his friends basically say, all right, Thessalonians, we want you to think about something. We want you to think about how is it that Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, how are we so crazy, bold, and persistent in speaking the truth of the gospel with our words and adorning the truth of the gospel with our deeds to you guys? How, how are we so persistent and bold in doing that when we were getting crazy persecution, all kinds of hate from people who didn't want us to do that and eventually forced us to leave your city? What kept us going? What, what kept us going in the hard work of Christian ministry? And the answer, if you have your Bible open, is found in verse 4. We looked at this last Sunday because it's the same thing that will empower us to keep following Jesus and doing what's right in the midst of a hard relationship today. And so we said it this way. Endurance in the work of ministry is sustained, it's preserved by a supreme desire to please the Lord through our ministry. If you want to keep going in a really hard relationship, this is so hard, I want to keep following Jesus in this relationship, but it is crazy hard. How are you going to do that? Well, it's not a roll of the dice. That's sustained by a supreme desire to please the Lord through our ministry. Look back at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Translation, your motivation really matters. That's what he's talking about. Okay, that's, that's the Matthew simplified translation. Your motivation matters. If you want to persevere in doing what's right, you have to do it for the right reasons. What's the right reason? Pleasing God. That's the whole point of verse 4. But if we could just have kind of a timeout, put on a little humility here, honesty, our motives are mixed, right? Even on our best days as Christians, we, we know, if we're being humble and honest, we, we don't know exactly why we do what we do. We don't know for sure. So how can we get a read a sense, any sort of clarity on whether in all our relationships we are living to please God or we're living to please man. Does that question make sense? How do we figure that out? I mean, it's just like, you know, one day you walk around and you like look in a mirror and you're a pleasing man. Bah! You know, how do we know which one of those things we're doing? Well, here's where God's word really helps us because we can look at the fruit we can look at the fruit. Think of it this way. The character of your ministry or the way you relate to other people around you re will reveal your motivation for ministry. They're connected, okay? So, verses 5 and 6, chapter 2, describe the character of a man-pleasing ministry that will not endure hardship. We focused on that last week. 
Today, we're going to linger on verses 7 to 12 because they describe the kind of God-pleasing ministry that will endure hardship. So, so remember the big principle, okay? Endurance in the work of ministry is sustained by a supreme desire to please the Lord through our ministry. So we're asking, what are the characteristics, the qualities of a kind of gospel ministry, a kind of relating to other people that please the Lord? That's our big question, okay? I'm going to give you two big categories. Here's the first one. We please God by relating to people like a good mother. All right? Verse 7, look there. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I think one of the most striking things in this passage is the way Paul, as a man, freely describes his ministry in terms of what a woman does. So think about this. He, he isn't signaling that gender roles are interchangeable. Okay, The very fact that he appeals to the example of a nursing mother as an illustration of one set of qualities and a father as an illustration of a different set of qualities presumes two things. One, unique God-given roles for men and women. And two, unique God-given abilities necessary to fulfill their roles. So he's not signaling that gender roles are interchangeable. And at the same time, notice this, He's also avoiding the opposite danger of gender stereotyping. So what do I mean by that? Well, we all know that if you skin your knee and you need a little comfort, you should probably run a mom. But if your life's a wreck and you're just making a royal hash of things, don't worry about mom. You need to talk to dad. Mm-hmm. Hope you hear some stereotyping in that, Okay. Notice, Paul never ever says mothers should not exhort and instruct or fathers should not be gentle and affectionate. He doesn't say that, okay? He simply says to the contrary, there are some qualities a good mother exemplifies in a unique way and some qualities a good father exemplifies in a unique way, listen to this, that we should all learn from and emulate in our relationships with one another. Okay? That was really important. Don't lose sight of what I said, because I'm not going to repeat all that. But why do we emulate whether we're a man or a woman? Why, why, does, why is Paul holding up as a man the example of a gender that he's not? Why would he do that? Well, friends, it's because both, both a good mother in her unique role and a good father in his unique role reflect the character of God himself. Amen. That's why. Isaiah 66, verse 13, As one whom his mother comforts, says Yahweh, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Or Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So so what can we learn about the kind of Christian ministry that pleases the Lord from a nursing mom? Well, having never been a nursing mom, I need God's wisdom right now, but I think there are at least three categories because this is in the Bible, and we're going to focus on verses 7 to 9. First, 
that it is a gentle ministry. What, what does Paul say? We were gentle among you. I don't know if you know this, but, but within minutes of being born, a humpback whale immediately starts learning to swim. Uh, when a baby deer is born, they can stand in 10 minutes and walk in seven hours, roughly. I've never seen a human infant do that. <laughs> you know, like they're being weighed in the birth room and it's kind of, boom, hey, I'm going to get out of here. You know, no, they, they don't do that. A human infant is different. They can't swim or stand or walk. They, we can't find food for ourselves. We're completely helpless. We're dependent for months. We, we require careful supervision and tender care in order to survive. We, we do. You, ha- you have to hold them. You have to clothe them. You have to change them. You have to feed them and burp them and then go right back to the beginning and do all that over again. You have to teach them to sleep. Sensitivity isn't optional. That's the point. It's mandatory. I was thinking about this. My my wife, Eliza, has always been a compassionate woman, but I I had never seen such tenderness up close and personal until I watched her care for our three boys, especially during the early months of their their life. Her, Her gentleness toward them wasn't weak. It was strong. It was it was beautiful. And you know what it did is it it gave me a vivid picture of the Lord's heart to care for me just like she was caring for that little child. It was gentle. And if you're a Christian, whether you're a man or a woman, the same kind of gentleness should be present in the way you relate to people around you. Same kind. It's not a a personality thing. We can think that. It's not a getting in touch with your sensitive side, guys, kind of thing, okay? It's about pleasing God by imitating God. So a gentle Christian is quick to listen and slow to speak. But, and before they speak, they, they give careful thought to the needs of the person that they're texting or writing or talking to. They're willing to say hard things, but they do it graciously and patiently and with with abundant kindness. A a gentle Christian doesn't despise or book it away from people who seem to have the same needs over and over and over. Can you just get a new problem, you know? Nursing mother, over, over and over again. A gentle Christian doesn't run away from people that feel stuck. Paul and his companions were gentle, in their ministry. They pleased the Lord as a result. Second, they were affectionate. Look at verse 8. This analogy just continues here. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, motive, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because, back to motive, you had become very dear to us. What's his point? The kind of ministry, the kind of relating to other people that pleases the Lord is affectionate. It's it's fueled by a deep and abiding love for them. So, So it might be as mundane as changing a diaper 
It might be as ordinary as inviting a visitor or friend from church to share a meal in your home, but it's not drudgery. Why? Because it's carried along by a genuine love for the person or the group of people that you're seeking to serve. In other words, how to illustrate this, God isn't like a commanding officer in the army. Why not? What might a commanding officer in the army say? Soldier, I don't care whether you want to do it or not. I don't. I don't care whether you're obeying in a cheerful way or not. Get the job done. Get the job done. Tell me when you're finished. Sent that email. Check. Prayed for that friend. Check. Study the Bible with my coworker. Check. Corrected my screaming toddler for the hundredth time. Check. Completed calendar se- planning session with my wife because she's been badgering me to communicate with her more for months. Check. All right, what else do you want? <laughs> it's possible to do all of those things because we think it's what we're supposed to do. We know it's right, so to speak, but our heart isn't in any of them. You know what I'm talking about? We're dead and cold on the inside. That kind of ministry, friends, is not pleasing to the Lord. It's not. Why not? Because it's not the way God relates to us. It preaches a false gospel where where Christianity is just reduced to kind of ticking off a list of performance benchmarks. And it speaks a lie about Jesus. That's a big deal. Why? Because no one is more satisfying or delightful or life-giving or enjoy-sustaining than him. But our attitude in some of these moments of Christian ministry, if people are watching us, we're just signaling, you know what? Following Jesus is just an absolute bore and drudgery. I mean, oh my word. But I guess I gotta do it. It's a big deal when we speak a lie about Jesus. So I'm not talking about having an affectionate personality. I'm not talking about adding a bunch of heart emoticon thingies <laughs> to the end of all your text messages. What am I talking about? I'm talking about crying out to God and asking him to do what? Help us to see people the way he does so that we could love people the way he does because that's exactly how he loves us. Make sense? So be honest, be honest. Is the way you relate to people, all kinds of people, is it driven by duty or by affection? That's the question we have to ask. They please the Lord because their relating to the Thessalonians was affectionate. Third, it was sacrificial. Back to verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Our own selves. It was gentle. It was affectionate. It was, it was sacrificial. Now, now here's where I'm really going to tread on some thin ice. So, ladies, just give me some grace, okay? If you've nursed a child, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because that little one, from my observation, at least, is literally consuming your body. <laughs> literally. You're, you're producing all their food, And the very act of producing it and delivering what they need can have significant long-term impacts on your physical figure. Okay? It costs you something to care for them. 
Your, your care for your child when, when no one else is watching. You're doing that in, in ways that are not glamorous. And I've yet to see a nursing infant that kind of pipes up when they're burping and, hey, thanks, mom. You know? No, right? It's sacrificial. You find a way to make a child do that, you'll, you'll be a millionaire. And it's sacrificial. And think about this. In an intensely physical sense. I think the same is true of the kind of one another ministry that, that pleases the Lord. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needful for the body, what, what good is that? Should we prioritize in our relating with other people, sharing the good news of the gospel with them, telling them about Jesus? Should that be a priority? Okay, raise your hand if you think yes. Okay, good, yeah, very good. Wasn't a trick question. Yes, yes. Is that the greatest gift we could ever give somebody to tell them with our mouth about Jesus? Yes. Does that mean the kind of ministry that is pleasing to the Lord is strictly spiritual? No. No, not at all. No, it's sacrificial in an intensely physical sense for two big reasons. Why? God created our bodies as well as our souls. We're we're embodied souls. And secondly, the Savior we follow as Christians physically laid down his life for us. You want to talk about intensely physical? Jesus didn't give, think about this, of himself. Here's a little bit of me. Or or of his excess, or when it was convenient. He gave what? He gave himself. All of himself. And the kind of ministry that pleases the Lord is no different, friends. In other words, Paul and his companions, they didn't just share the gospel. What does he say? They shared their own selves. Exhibit A. Instead of demanding the Thessalonians support them financially, which they had a right to expect as apostles of Christ, they supported themselves through their own labor. Look at verse 9. Guys, you remember our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Probably making tents that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Is Paul indicting or critiquing vocational ministry? No, not at all. What's he doing? He's simply urging the Thessalonians and urging us to follow him as he followed Christ. How? How do we do that? By loving and relating to people in a way that really costs us something. Like it costs Christ. So it could be your comfort. It could be your convenience. It could be your financial resources. Ooh, it could be your personal space in your home. Or your peace and quiet. The big point is that, that we please the Lord when, when we bring all that we are, all that we have, all our time, our resources, our gifts and abilities, our stuff, and we bring it all to Jesus and say, Lord, use all this, help me to sacrificially serve other people in very physical ways. 
gentle, affectionate, sacrificial, we can learn a lot from a good mom. Here's the second category, okay? We please God by relating to people like a good father. A good father. So much to learn from both for all of us. Look at verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Again, we're talking about the kind of ministry that pleases the Lord. And and I think it's helpful to know that in the first century culture into which Paul was writing here, Christian or non-Christian, there was a broad understanding and expectation that a father was responsible for the moral instruction and behavior of his children. That was just a broad cultural expectation. But, But please notice this, for Paul, the analogy to relating to people, pleasing God in relationships like a good father, it's not rooted in pagan culture. It's not. It's rooted in God's design for spiritual leadership in the family. Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, now I said I wouldn't come back to this, but, but, but let's qualify this a little bit. Does that mean mom shouldn't provide discipline and instruction in the Lord? Oh my goodness, that should have been a stronger response. <laughs> we, uh, a new message. Okay, now, does that mean mom shouldn't provide discipline and instruction in the Lord? No, right? I want to be a pastor unless my mom had done that for me. Your kids need you to do that, moms. So, so what's the point of Ephesians 6.4? The point, dads, is that you're uniquely responsible for making sure that mission gets accomplished. Responsible for making all your children Christians. No, <laughs> Responsible for making sure they leave your home knowing what it means to love and treasure and follow Jesus? Yes. Yes. So, how did Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians reflect the strengths of a good father? Let's look at three categories here as well, okay? First, it, is, it was bold. It was bold. Look at verse 12. Notice the active verbs here. We exhorted, we encouraged, we charged you. Think about this. Their ministry involved a whole lot more than just a provoking life example. It was verbal. Okay? It involved speaking to people, urging them with their mouth to honor the Lord with their life and not give up when obeying Jesus was getting kind of hard, okay? So that has both a a corrective, don't do that, listen to my words, corrective aspect, and a formative, let's do this aspect to it. And I think this boldness is worth lingering on because see if you can track with this, okay? There is a kind of false, feel-good community in the church where everyone is, air quotes, kind to each other. But nobody has the guts to actually speak into somebody else's life with the persistent authority of God's word. We're we're so afraid of doing anything that might hurt somebody or, or be perceived by them as insensitive 
or offensive? Or did you just call into question whether something I was doing is right? That we never insert our voice. God help you. (laughs) We're not bold. And so we sit around and wait to be asked for advice. And if someone does ask, we limit our comments to things like, well, this is what I would do. Or, in my experience, you may want to prayerfully consider the possibility of thinking about the merits of slightly altering your approach to Guys, that's nonsense. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. When you're in a battle, for those of you that have been in the military, you don't go around talking like that. There's a a boldness, there's an authority that comes from knowing your mission and knowing life and death are on the line. Do do you realize spiritually we're in a fight with real enemies where the outcome is eternal? And so we don't gather to to play church like this is some sort of, well, whatever works for you, if religion's your thing, it sort of gets you charged up for another week, you know, have at it. I've got other paths to enlightenment. No, no, okay? God is real friends. His judgment is certain. Salvation is possible. And all the choices you make in your life, guess what? They really matter. There is a, there's a grave sobriety to the Christian life. There's a weighty earnestness that demands a whole lot more than, than sauntering in on a Sunday morning. Coffee in hand. I'm, I'm not dissing any of you who bring your coffee, okay? Hoping for an uplifting spiritual experience. Oh, they played my favorite song. I don't like that song. I hope the pastor just kind of, you know, does his thing and charges me up and I just feel inspired. Because after this, there's some great football games on and I can't wait to get home. So, So don't go long. I'll take a little lighthearted conversation afterward, but not too much, because it might be late for football. I want you to compare that to the battle in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Kingsway, take care. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what that is? That's boldness in Jesus. There's courage in that. We don't don't gather, in other words, for the sake of positive spiritual vibes, okay? We gather what? To read the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, to speak the word, to, to hear the word of Christ so that we what? So that we love Jesus for the treasure he is and don't stop until the end of the story when he returns. That's why we're here. You need people to exhort you so you don't lose heart. Other people need you to exhort them 
Like the kind of ministry that pleases the Lord. Please hear this, friends. It's not available. Feel free to call. It's bold. It presses in. It gets in other people's business. Second, it's personal. In case you can't tell, I feel rather strongly about that point. We're going to move a little quicker here. I, I love this phrase in verse 12. Look very carefully. We exhorted in generic boilerplate language full of Christian platitudes. Eh, not quite. We exhorted each one of you. Think about that. But Paul and his companions, they didn't go around speaking in spiritual generalities. There was nothing generic about their exhortations. Hey, you follow Jesus. Hey, you follow Jesus. Hey, <laughs> there was nothing boilerplate in their encouragements. They were specific. They were personal. They, they provided the right word at the right time in the right way for a particular individual. So I'm not saying their ministry was just all kind of one-on-one -on -one counseling. I am saying it wasn't built on catchphrases or pat answers. So it required what? Slowing down and listening and understanding and then addressing an individual as an individual. It was personal. And there's a personal quality to the kind of ministry that pleases the Lord. Lastly, under this heading, it was God-centered. God-centered. Look back at verse 12. I want you to notice here what their, their exhortation and encouragement aimed to accomplish. Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Boldness to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Listen, the ultimate goal of our ministry toward one another is really, really important. That's what Paul's saying. The, the kind of ministry that pleases the Lord, think about this, doesn't say whatever will convince the people around us to make all the same choices that we have made in our life. Doesn't do that, okay? That's not the goal. We want that as parents, right? Just do everything I've done and that'll feel good. I like that. But, but that's not the goal of our ministry. What's our goal? To help one another what? Look at verse 12. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. Okay, so in other words, we don't want to build a church of lemmings where, where people just go around and kind of do what everybody else is doing. All right, which way? Uh, don't watch that movie? Okay. All right, um, dress like that? Oh, okay. Um, have people over for dinner three times a week? That's really hard. My wife's got a terminal illness, but okay. You know. <laughs> no, okay? We don't want to do that. Now, I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here, okay? There should be something consistently distinctive about the pattern of our life as Christians. That the Bible is very clear that certain behaviors are consistent with a Christian life and certain behaviors are not. But within that unity should exist what? A God-glorifying diversity because we're not ultimately following one another. We're following the Lord. So we want to walk in a manner worthy of him. So what's the application here? Take care, friend, that when you exhort and encourage and, and do the bold thing and get in other people's business that you don't leave them focused on a behavior or on a piece of good life advice 
or even your own example. Well, when I had kids, feel free to share that. But before you're done, could you please point them to Jesus? To hoping in him? To following him? Point them to what God says in his word, what you see God doing in their life, and, and to the kind of life that God's word tells us is worthy of him. Be bold, personal, God-centered. We please the Lord by relating to people like a good father. We'll conclude with this. We began last Sunday by thinking about how difficult it is to persevere in following Jesus in hard relationships. And I think, on the heels of this message especially, it would be very easy to think, okay, Pastor, I, I think I'm tracking. This relationship's really hard, but all I need to do to make it easy <laughs> and to make all the problems go away and, and just watch the waters of peace and unity part and amazing, is I've got to be, what were the six things? Oh, six, that's a lot. Can you preach shorter? Um, let's see, it was gentle, affectionate, sacrificial, sort of to be bold, personal, something about God, God-centered. Okay, all right, one, two, three, uh, go do all six. Please fight to put on all those qualities, please. But remember this, remember this. They are the fruit of a very specific root. They are the branches that grow out of a very particular tree. And that kind of tree is a man or woman who has turned from their sin, has placed all their hope for salvation and deliverance in Jesus. Not just at the beginning of their Christian life, but for everything for the entire Christian life, and as a result of that, is passionate about pleasing the Lord. That's the key. Verse 4 is the key. Verse 4 says what? So we speak not to please man, but to please God. Remember this, friends. I mean, gentleness, affection, sacrifice, boldness, you name it. It will not endure unless it is the overflow of a deep desire to please the Lord. So I want to charge you at the end of these two messages to make this prayer your own. Lord, help me to please you in my relationships. Help me to please you. Easy, hard, in between. Would you give me, God, please give me a supreme and ruling desire to please you. And then show me how to do that practically. And then let's praise God. Can we praise God that every time we fail to please him, every time we're not gentle, we're not sacrificial, we're selfish, we're not bold, that he gives more grace. <laughs> more grace. Be because of Jesus, our God is quick to forgive. Because of Jesus, our God is quick to empower. He's eager. But because of Jesus, we know that there is no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that includes all your failures and mine to be all six of those things. So let's strive to please God, to really please him, not man, but let's do it with our hope fixed in God and not our behavior. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you would use this word to help us to please you and not man. We want to do what is honorable in the sight of all, but we do not want the gas in the car of our life to be whatever makes people like me more. Lord Jesus, help us to please you. Help us to love like a nursing mother, a good mother. Help us to love like a good father. And thank you most of all that while we're struggling along our little way to learn how to do these things better, you keep right on doing all of them perfectly for us. Thank you for that. Help us to trust you as our only redeemer as we sing this song. Amen.